Radio Erin, we present The Burning of Cork, a documentary on the burning of Cork City on the night of December the 11th, 1920. Which was a, it was a fine night. It was a fine night. It was a fine night, I remember. As well as I remember. Of course, uh, the usual winter night, uh, normal, normal, a normal night. The night was very dark, dry, very dark, dry night. And uh, as far as I remember, there were no, there were no stars at all because you could see the reflection of the fl from of the flames from the burning of the town against the um, the cloud layer. This was Cam in Cool Lake. That's all. The morning newspapers carried a report stating that martial law had been proclaimed in southwest Ireland, including Cork, East and West Riding, and the city of the county of Cork. They also carried familiar reports of ambushes, killings, trials, movements of prisoners, and parliamentary debates. Crown forces, particularly black and tans and auxiliaries, in the centre of Cork City were in an unusually agitated mood early in the afternoon. It was a custom at the time for the uh, Jarvis to have a stand in Patrick Street and uh, the black and tans cordoned off the street and uh, they had some uh, uh, talk with two girls who they suspected of carrying ammunition or arms. One went across to the Jarvis car and he took the whip from the Jarvis and um, got the girl to take off her stockings, boots and stockings in the street and he used the whip on her shins. Dillon's Cross is about half a mile from the centre of the city and a few hundred yards from what was then Victoria Barracks. Lorries of auxiliaries were ambushed there early in the evening. Uh, about half past seven or so that night, I was sitting down to tea with the rest of the family and suddenly we were all brought to our feet by the sound of a grenade exploding somewhere outside, followed soon afterwards by two further explosions. Then after a silence, there was shouting and shots, revolvers and rifle shots being fired outside. I ran upstairs to the bedroom window and by the light of the gas lamp across the way and a public house, I saw a scattered body of auxiliaries racing down the road, shouting and shooting for all they were worth. This went on for quite a while until somebody took charge of them and got them into some sort of order and started a house-to-house -house search. Normal life in the city was suspended earlier than usual. The hearing of confessions was interrupted in Mayfield Church, high up on the hill over Dillon's Cross. So I came out of the church and I saw the looking down from the hill into the hollow of Dillon's Cross. I saw the flames coming from some houses that were burning and I heard shots being fired. I went from that to Ren's house and there happened to be there another lady from the same terrace and uh, we decided that as she had only her mother at home that we'd um, make an effort to get home 
So the only way to get home was to, well, as we say, bypass Dillon's Cross and go down Garner's Hill to St. Luke's and go up Cassidy's Avenue to the Old Yard Road. We went down the Old Yard Road past several blackened hands with petrol tin, but that took no notice of us. And the young lady happened to live in the middle of the terrace, so I went down to see her in the gate, and as I turned from the gate, the shadow, from the shadow of the big long wall opposite, which is now, has now been knocked down, four or five uh, black and tans came over, and a voice said, search that man and watch the housetops. At that time, we were living on the Ballyhooly Road, almost within a hundred yards of Dillon's Cross itself. No one came near our particular house, but we did hear an order being shouted outside that the houses on both sides of the road were to be searched. So with that we sat down and waited. And in came, not an auxiliary or a black and tan, but a, a British army officer with a private along with him. The private was dead drunk, the officer was sober, and the private had hanging around his belt half a dozen Mills grenades. He was swayed on his feet. The officer was quite, uh, quite nice about the whole thing, questioned us who was in the house, was there anyone missing, so on and so forth, and really made a sort of perfunctory job of it, and then he departed. Military activity was intensified in the centre of the city and people were escorted home or advised to leave the streets before curfew hour. I was about to close the shop about 10 o'clock at night. And then I was walking down Patrick Street towards my hotel, in which I was staying in Princess Street, Hoskins Hotel. Uh, I was accosted by um, Black and Tan, who uh, searched me and wanted to know why I was on the street. I told him I'd just locked up the shop and they searched me. And I happened to have an apple in one pocket and an orange in another pocket, you see. And uh, he was rather taken back. I imagine that he thought they were two Mills's bombs, you see. So uh, uh, then he thought that it would be best if he escorted me down to, um, to the hotel to make sure that I went in and that I was telling the truth. That's what I should imagine, anyhow. Well, he said, well, you better get inside and keep inside. Just like that. In the old opera house, down by the river, the curtain fell on the last act of the gondoliers at half past nine. I was with a friend who was playing Giuseppe, uh, Jack Holland, God rest his soul, and we decided that uh, as we had to go to the south side of the city, that would be wiser not to attempt to go through Paddock Street. So we went up the quay, up to Corn Market Street, and cut through Corn Market Street and got up to the Queen's Old Castle. When before we arrived there, actually, there was firing and a lot of bustle and excitement there. 
So we got uh, a bit scared and we winded our way back to the cold key again where uh, we found a friendly house where we knew we would be welcome and uh, all, also have the chance of getting a drink. Uh, we stayed there, of course, and uh, watched out where there was a lot of uh, movement over at the Bridewell. Uh, black and tans rushing here and there, and we passed the night there occasionally looking out through the curtains, and um, the uh, finish-up of it was at others. The black and tans, five or six black and tans coming down, the rolling drunk shouting and singing, and winding their way to the bridewell where, when they were approaching it, three or four black and tans rushed out and they said, well, well, how's it going? Oh, they said, fine, fine, just look at that. The first drapery and furniture stores in Patrick Street were on fire. I remember looking out the window and uh, seeing the, the black and tans dancing around the street with ladies' corsets on them. That was about one o'clock at night. Uh, I then remember or saw cans of, uh, cans of petrol and hand torches working in the dark underneath us, laying the petrol on the floor yes. prior to the fire. Uh, the next thing we were, um, the door was broken in and the front, and then they came around to the side and uh, the senior um, floor superintendent opened the door. They came upstairs and ordered us out onto the street. Uh, a machine gun was playing from an armoury car where the Savoy Cinema is now, down Miller Street. And as strange as may seem, a black and tan saved our lives that night because he was at the opposite side of the street and he would not allow the his... Um, well, we say, fellow uh, black and tan to put it out on the road, because he, had he done so, we'd have been shot down with this machine gun playing in the streets. The tents had malls, heavy, heavy sledgehammers, and pinch bars, iron bars about four feet long, with a hook on them, a slide that you would and the prices were up. And they smashed, they smashed every, and any place they wanted to get into, that, that shout to them and bring the bed on, kick up the eyes, well, if the door wasn't open, they break it in. They just, they get out of the way. And they fire shots, but not to, not to hit us, the frightened and uh, 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 went into Thompson's then in Winthrop Street, a wine and spirit stores. There was nobody living in it, but they smashed it in, and who saw the whiskey they could get there. Even they left some of the cases of whiskey out. They couldn't bring it with them. And they went right along then up the Princess Street. I went to a public house there, lit the light, the gas light. They went inside the counter and they took the bottles of whiskey, poured it out to the people. They give it any money. When the fire brigade arrived in Patrick Street, they met a hostile soldiery. And when we got there, there were two or three fires. 
and uh, gotten straight firemen was working on one of them. And we, we tackled the other and we beat it down. And the tents moved further on and gave more, gave more fires. And then cut the holes. And then, that didn't do either. We had more holes and we, got, we had to get another into us. The minutes came in, they dropped their, their fighting lorries over the holes and smashed it. In, well, when we got into Patrick Street, we, in other words, we were useless. They were cutting the hoses. And they were firing all around them. There was one man, Timmy Herden's son. I forget his name, I forget his other name now. He's a chap old six foot two, but a bloody fine fella. He was going up on top of Cassius, on the ladder. He was ordered down by a black and tan with a bomb in his hand. You're out of fire, not pleased to that. He was told he'd to get this or get down. And that meant that that fire went on. It was worse than if a fellow was outside in Flanders or on any other battlefield. You, you stand pipe might be away over the other side of the street, you see, and they, they, they'd scared the hoes over and you wouldn't see him at all. You'd be at the fire. You couldn't see him in the water. I shall be down the ground. Up around Dillon's Cross and Ballyhooley Road, people were trying to sleep after a few uneasy hours. A tremendous crash brought me out of the bed and onto my feet at the same time, and I saw blowing across our bedroom window a sheet of flame. That was the house sitting next door that had been set on fire, the one that they were bringing the petrol to when I was going to bed, and this must have been about two hours later, and the roof of the house had collapsed, and that was the crash that awakened me. So I ran downstairs, opened the door, and stepped into the arms of a black and tan. He wanted to know where I was going to, what I was doing. I said I was going out to the house next door. I said, it's in danger of being burned out. I'm going out to help them to shift their furniture, and with that, some other members of my family came tumbling down behind me, so I left him <laughs> to take care of them, and I moved out next door and proceeded to shift their furniture out of the house. Well, we, got, we had the furniture shifted out when the wind, which had been blowing up the road, suddenly changed direction and started blowing down the road, with the result that the house between the, burnt, the burning house and ours, the house that intervened there, was safe, but the house on the other side of the boarding house was in danger. Young apprentices living in were forced onto the streets. My friend and myself, being of military age at the time, were detained back and uh, taken into the kitchen where we were put up against the wall and uh, one black and tan said to the other, shoot him. The other fellow, who was half drunk, said, do it yourself. At this particular time, we felt that was the end of things. And uh, we had our hands over our heads. And uh, the only recollection I always have of the situation was that I know, would I see the bullet coming out of the revolver? Well, he put me to the head of the staircase. 
and he told me to turn my back, which I did. I thought I'd get a, a bullet in the head, but instead of that, I got a kick which sent me down 16 steps of stairs and landed below in the hall. I was proceeding from Corbick Street to King Street at the time, and there was three or four ladies of breaking tents came along, and they had me hands in my pockets. <laughs> and they gave a roar at me that they shook every bone in my body <laughs> to take me hands home in my pockets. Most of the south side of Patrick Street was on fire by 11 o'clock. I was on duty uh, the night of the fire in the GPO. They came off duty about 11 o'clock, walked up Winthrop Street and came onto Patrick Street, which was covered in uh, water flowing everywhere. And uh, firemen rushing all over the place with hoses to try and stop the fire. The fire was raging then from Merchant Street uh, to, to, to Winthrop Street and along up to Cook Street. The fire then travelled uh, along and down Cook Street. Down Cook Street. Uh, down Robert Street. And the Munster Arcade was all in flames. Fitzgerald was on fire and O'Regan's. But it stopped at Tompkins. It stopped there. And uh, that's where the street is widened now. And uh, is there O'Connell shop was at the corner of Merchant Street at that time? Of course, the whole block now was taken up by Rocha stores. And O'Sullivan's were further up then. The fire, the fire stopped there, it started as it was burning there also. Um, there were a few scattered people about, that was Aldo. But black and tens everywhere, and they're racing about, and they're looting the shops. Well, they were darting in and out of houses about. And uh, as far as I saw, they were ripping the hoses. Because water was flowing everywhere about. And the firemen was doing the best they could against all kinds of odds. Soon, organised terror gave way to comic disorder. I went off down the lane then, and uh, a black and tan jumped up on top of me. And he says, come on, we'll have a waltz. And I put down the hose, and I was waltzing with him. And I noticed he'd been a small man, he had a rifle with a strap, and it was protruding up to my chin. And I said to him, here, boss, look at where that's protruding. And uh, uh, I said, it's rather dangerous, because it was, he had a bottle in his pocket, and I was afraid the trigger was hitting the bottle. So he said to me, uh, all right, he says, I'm Sonny Jim, he says, I never fired a shot in Cork. And he fired, he got the rifle, and he threw it out in the middle of Patrick Street. He put me down the lane, the public house at the, the West Market Lane. He put me in, he took down all the shelves. He says, hey, well, don't be short. To go up the draw and all, he says, hey, well, he says. So at that then I left him there. I was knocking around then, and I went down the Winter Street in the morning. I found that the boot shop was just kitchen and fire, below Winter Street. And uh, there was a hose in the ground, but the pressure was very poor, and I was trying to check that too, but I found it no use. So on looking down towards Merchant Street, I see four men, black and tens, four tall men with handkerchiefs over their faces. And when they see me, they presented their rifles with straps on them. They presented towards me and fired in my direction. They, they were repeating the same thing again. Um, I, there was an escort over by, by Lester's soldiers, Sergeant and about five soldiers, and I went over and I uh, across the road, and they called them over. So 
they came across and the other black and tans came up and they both met. They had a discussion and the black and tans then went into the boot shop, went to come out with four big bags on top of their boots, on top of their shoulders. And I watched where they went and they went up drawbistry. We were drinking. And stupid drunk, I see, fallen drunk. People fallen drunk. And, and, and they had a bottle or two of whiskey with them, and they and they marching home. And boots and clothes going away with them. This hands uh, throw them to them, they take them. And they took their share of them, the tenses. <laughs> yes, yes. And some of the people took their share too. Uh, one man, he played on a woman. She had a... A bag, a, a coarse bag, like a, a bag for holding coal or coal, and she had it full of with boots, and she's like this way, and he played the horse in her, and she dropped, but just taken after somebody else and took it out. Comic disorder outside, and a reasonably relaxed atmosphere under the gaslights in a public house. I got into open air after the door, of course, I could get in there any time. You see, any time, any time after those, I go there, I get a drink. And she opened the door about that much. Peter Sheila was for a black and tell me, said, I want to get a drink. Which she does too much, so I will belong. And then I got for three points. And the place was saturated with food, with black and tell guns all on the counter. And it's all. Well, they jumped over the, over the, he was sitting on top of one of the tables. Uh, yeah, the old daddy says, what brought you in here? Is it the same yourself, a little refreshment? I see. What regiment here belong to, says I belong to no regiment, says I. If we got you with a little table to drink. There was another table dinner, and there was the bakehouse tin, you know. And tins, the chest of cake, you, I suppose you wouldn't know what it was. Big slivers of cake on a pan. Uh, and he had, he had about six or eight of them piled up on top of another knee. You have kiddies at home, says he. I have, says I. Bags of them. Very well, say, we give us something going on. I don't have a chest of cake coming on, my <laughs> Up at Dylan's Cross, two terrified children hid all night. Snuggled together at the gable end of a house. We were there uh, from seven o'clock on a Saturday night until about half three on the Sunday morning. Uh, my brother and myself had the, the terrible experience of uh, a drunken auxiliary to um, come over to the hoarding, which is only inches away from our head, and he hacking his revolver off to try and dislodge a bullet. Uh, from time to time, uh, there used to be a, a, a lull, a lull come on, and um, it was kind of an inducement to, for anybody that wanted to come out of hiding or... Well, what I saw then made me change my mind of trying to make any further attempt of getting out. There were black and tans, auxiliaries, standing inside gates, and even a lorry loaded them like statues. Uh, apparently, 
apparently uh, observing silence. That would remain for 10 minutes, quarter of an hour, maybe 20 minutes. Suddenly, for some reason, for reason that I don't know, I'd open up fire again. I might shout halt, and you might hear a gate clicking down the road. During the early hours of the morning, the city hall and the Carnegie Library on the south side of the river were burned. Of course, I can, can't give you a very detail because you must remember, we at this time were terrified. Uh, terrified. They'd been shot and we, we were hiding around Congress. And in fact, we were, uh, some of us felt that we shouldn't go to Mass at all. And more of us felt that we should go to Mass. And we were really risking ourselves going out to Mass there in the morning. And I saw with my own eyes the lather, the big lather, and uh, putting them up against the Carnegie Library, where the City Hall now stands, and burning both the Carnegie Library and the City Hall. Uh, entry was, was, was made there by, through the roof, by these uh, fire brigade ladders, which were on huge wheels, yes. that they I could be pushed around, you see, the streets. Dawn broke as the flames around the centre of the city were dying. Gas lights were already out when the lamplighters came on duty. You see, we, we light at, um, at that particular time of the year, approximately about four o'clock in the evening. You see, and we owed them, then extinguish them at um, seven o'clock in the morning. So I proceeded anyway to uh, Don Pope's Key and over Patrick's Bridge. And the first thing that took me eye was um, something in the middle of Patrick Street, just by the fire and rest nose. We call it in Patrick Street, and I went over curiosity, and it was a tram burned to a cinder, one of those electric trams that was running here at the time. So um, I went down Merchant Street and by the light of the fire, of course there was no other light, you see. So as I was going down Merchant Street, I happened to go down halfway and I met one of my comrades. He's dead since God rest his soul. And uh, so see, where are you going? So I said, I'm going down to the city hall. So see, there's no city hall there. See, it's burning down. So we had a bit of a chat and he was telling me his experience about he was held up by the one of the tens and told to hop it as quick as he could. And so we came back the same way and curiosity, I could see just in front of me down Paddock Street, a few firemen in the, with their hoses and the, hosing the fire, so they might as well be <laughs> throwing water into the, into the lee. They walked up Paddock Street and they turned around from Paddock Street into uh, Melbourne Street. There I saw a man on the footpath with uh, about a dozen pairs of boots and shoes. We were sorting them out, but they were all hard shoes. There wasn't a pair in the whole lot he had. Men were returning home after being on night duty, some hearing early mass in St. Patrick's on their way across the city from Glenmire Station. After mass, I left St. Patrick's Chapel and walked up to Patrick Street. And short distance down the street, I saw a heap of books on the pavement. Sat from the chapel with me, we picked up some, eight of them. We were inclined to take them with us, but we just simply didn't. We threw them back on the street. And uh, walking down further to the junction of Marlborough Street, I saw a couple of lads and this man and woman, they were just bringing a mattress out through a window when a, what I took to be not I see man came over and plastered one of them over the neck with a gun. 
And uh, they immediately decamp, leaving the mattress on the street with all the other rubble that was knocking around at the time, hoses, bricks, tiles and all sorts of stuff. In the morning, the destruction of the city terrified the people. It disturbed the authorities and the children enjoyed themselves. Went down Patrick Street, uh, myself and a chap named Thomas Sullivan. I walked on about 50 yards and I spotted a little three-wheel cycle and it was coming on Christmas and I thought what a lovely prison it would be. And I made an attempt to get it to save from being burned. And I got what you call a boot on the backside. So I was in off about my business. Well, after the after that went down where the ESB showrooms are present. And we were rummaging amongst the, the debris. We walked up and saw a hole in the wall. So Sullivan, being a bit stronger than me, decided to have a look around. He went in and came out with a huge parcel of pipes, tobacco, more organs, and souvenir. We kept the more organs, but we sold the pipes and the tobacco about 30 shillings for picture money. That was The Burning of Cork, a documentary on the burning of Cork City on the night of December the 11th, 1920. The program, which was compiled from eyewitness accounts, was edited and presented by Andreas O'Gallagher.